Let's face it, people have different sleep needs. While you love your partner, sleeping next to them might not always be the most comfortable. Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs, so you can choose what's right for each of you whenever you like. Maybe you prefer a firmer mattress and your partner needs something softer. Because of the individualized comfort that you get from Sleep Number Smart Beds, you and your partner will sleep better together. All Sleep Number Smart Beds feature cooling, pressure-relieving comfort layers for soothing sleep throughout the night. And their temperature balancing bedding is designed to move heat and moisture away when you're hot. When you're cool, they hold their energy to help warm you. The smart beds even automatically respond and adjust to your movements so you sleep comfortably all night long. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards only at a sleep number store or sleepnumber.com you're the mom the maid the keeper of the cookies you do it all and you look good doing it it's parenthood on a mother level here's your host denise hanitka Hi, everyone. I'm Denise Hanitka, and this is episode 97 of on a mother level. I am beyond blown away and grateful that you are here for another episode as we approach the 100 episode mark. It feels like a huge milestone and I still have no idea what I've talked about for 100 episodes. So like, wow, so cool. Um, Anyway, episode 97 is a great interview and this one features Brittany Ionescu and she is the mother of four and she describes herself like this. She says, I live in a high stress environment and family because of what my kids have been through. My love for them is unconditional questionable, but it's a journey of figuring out how to be the mother they need. And that's because her journey has included foster parenting and fostering to adopt with all four of her children. And her journey is really interesting because she has followed it, gone with her gut, stuck with her husband through some tough days. And when we got done with the interview, she posted on Instagram just the best thing that a podcast host could hear. And she said that our interview was like a therapy session. And so I hope that's how you hear it and um, and that it gives off that vibe when you listen to this conversation. So last week, I told you that I was going to be going to a Gilda's Club event, fanciest event that I've been to in a little while, which is awesome. It felt great to get dressed up. I'm a big Rent the Runway person, and I got the most incredible dress from Rent the Runway. It was a little witchy. It was like all black and had kind of these crisscrosses on it, but it was very plunging in front. So I took my mom of two breastfed baby self, um, ditched the bra for the night, and went to this Gilda's Club gala, and I was a little self-conscious, but I think it looked great. And I was really proud of my 37-year-old self for pushing myself out of my comfort zone and wearing something really fabulous because I think it paid off. So that was really cool. I got to meet Tammy Pescatelli, who if you have not heard her interview on the podcast, that was episode 73. And she talked about being a woman in comedy back in the days when her agent questioned how she would ever do stand-up comedy after getting pregnant. Like, 
how could those two things possibly exist ever again? How could you ever be a pregnant woman on stage? So she's a really fascinating interview. She performed during the Gilda's Club event. Thousands and thousands and thousands of dollars were raised for Gilda's Club, which um, is a, a an organization that helps families and cancer patients and children and anyone whose life has been impacted by cancer and it's really a beautiful organization and I've been involved with them for many years and I'm I'm proud whenever they ask me to help them out with an event. So let's get to this interview with Brittany you guys. Again like I said she's the mom of four and right off the top she's going to introduce herself. So here we go with Brittany. Yeah so I'm married to Dan and we've been married I don't know. 13 years. We're past the point of like counting, I guess. Um, and my kids are Alex is 11, Amari is 10, Xavier's nine, and Naomi is four. And they all came to us through foster care. Wonderful. Are any of them related? Yeah. So the boys are biological brothers. Okay. And they came to us like all on the same day um, at ages two, three, and four. And then Naomi is not biologically related. Excellent. So uh, where do we begin with the story? Um, How did you get started on this path to begin with? Yeah. Okay. So Dan and I had always talked about adopting. We wanted to have biological kids and we wanted to adopt. And we weren't like actively trying to have bio kids, but it wasn't happening for us either. And so I said, okay, well, let's just, we want both. So let's start down the adoption path. That's something we can control a little bit. And we started saving for a private adoption. And as we got into it, we were like doing fundraisers and all this stuff. I was like, why are we saving all this money and getting on this wait list for people? Like there's such a long wait list and it's so expensive when there's kids like in our neighborhood who needs families right now. And so we just like had a discussion and we were like, okay, like let's just do foster care. It's free, which at the time was very appealing rather than raising 30 something thousand dollars and just our hearts I think we're more aligned with like what like someone's going to you know like they'll they'll do it um but what about these other kids who need places right now so yeah we just started our training and we couldn't find one near us so we went to Rockford every week back and forth like two hour drive and did our training there for like 10 weeks and then all of like the licensing stuff with the people coming in your home and all that. And then we said we were open to a sibling group because um, sibling groups are really hard to place because um, it's so hard to find someone to take two or more kids, but it's so important for them to be together. Absolutely. So we were like, yeah. And like, I laugh at myself now because I was looking at like sibling groups of like six and I was like, that'd be so great. And then that, then we took three and I'm like, I don't know why I thought I could take six, but, um, so I really love that we were able to take a sibling group and yeah, I just, you kind of fill out your preferences and all that, like what you're willing to take and what you're not. And I, I think that's such a good time to be honest with yourself of like, this is something I can handle. This is something I cannot handle. So you're not like getting yourself in a position where you can't handle it. And then the kid has to move again because sure. it's too hard. So it's like so important to be honest at that point, but, um, we felt like we could do siblings. And so we said yes to that. And, um, yeah, she, she left me a voicemail one day and she was like, I have a, um, a sibling group. They're ages two, three, and four. They're all boys. 
do you want to set up a time to meet them? So I was like, Dan, my husband worked overnights and he was sleeping. So I woke him up and I was like, what do you think? You know? And he's like, okay, let's just meet them, you know? And so that's kind of how it starts. Like you just meet. And at the time they were in another foster home. So it wasn't an emergency situation where they were coming from bio family. They had been in foster care for years. And so it was a little bit less like emergency for us with the boys. Naomi, my daughter was like that, where it was like, okay, do you want her like right now? But the boys were, we had time to meet them and do like a gradual process. So let me back you up just a little bit. So when you start down this road, you are, are you a foster parent first or are you fostering with the, the end goal of adoption or is there, are there separate paths for these different types of family setups? Yeah. Yeah. So you can say like at the beginning, we knew we wanted to adopt. And so we made that very clear with our social worker and you can and should do that if that's your goal. Um, but social workers don't really like to hear that because the goal of foster care is for kids to return home. Like that's the ultimate goal. Oh, I see. Okay. So, and that's great. Like I, if kids can go home, I 100% think they should. Um, I agree with that goal. So when my social worker heard that, she was like, well, you know, the goal is for them to go home. And I'm like, I know, but I also know not everyone goes home. And so some foster families, I know they only foster, they don't want to adopt. And so they only keep the kids, you know, for a year or two years or whatever, until they can return home or find a permanent solution, like an adoptive home. So, but we knew we wanted to head toward adoption. When you say that you had training, what does that all entail? And I'm surprised that you wouldn't be able to get it close to home. There is, there are places close to home in the Quad Cities, just with my husband's schedule, they're scheduled in the line. Okay. Okay. So it shouldn't be that hard. (laughs) Okay. All right. Training was like, they call it pride. I think I forget what it stands for, but it's more just like, it's a little bit of trauma-informed care. I, in hindsight, I wish it would have been way more trauma-informed education. Um, just learning about the process and like the court system a little bit, um, but really just some legalities and then some like how to care for kids kind of a thing. Okay. How often, as far as you know, do people who don't have kids already start going down this road? Does that make it challenging or does that make it easier because you're walking in with no expectations of what kids are or are not? Had I had biological kids, I probably wouldn't have taken this on because it's just so busy being a mom. Like it really takes a lot of effort to do this. And so like, you're not just going to like, oh, I'll take a kid. Like you really have to do a lot ahead. Um, So I think a lot of people in theory would take a foster placement, but if you already have kids and life is crazy, like, are you really going to take the time to train? Like if you do, I think that's amazing. But um. Yeah, I feel like the foster families that like my kids were with before us, like one was a single woman, one was a family who like their kids were grown and out of the house. So they weren't having like little kids around also. And as far as expectations, I nannied for years and they were like, I considered them like my babies. Like we're always like, the mom was like, you're my co-parent. Like we did like everything together. Um, And so I felt prepared in that way. Like I really felt like I was capable of like fully loving a child that wasn't biologically mine, but I mean, of course it's so different when they're your sole responsibility and they're calling you mom. 
you know, versus Brittany. So yeah. <laughs> I felt a little prepared, but not totally. So what are the expectations or what are the thoughts going into, you get this call about this sibling group, they're two, three, and four, your husband's on board. What were your expectations at that moment about what the next couple of days would be like and how did it end up being? We met like with the social worker at first, they came to our home. It was completely like bonkers, like two hours. I mean, they're two, three, and four, like nuts like and still to this day balls of energy like all boy all of <laughs> so it was nuts but my expectation was that'll calm down that will calm down and it's going to be crazy at first but that will calm down after a few months no no they are still that way today and so that you know I was really thinking they would more quickly move to a place of security I was really naive to think that it would happen I knew it would take time, but I didn't know how much like we're yeah. using but working on that, you know? So I felt very prepared. Like my social worker was really good about preparing me of like what's to come and like next steps. So they, they did a good job, which I don't think is the case for everyone. I feel like I have a really good caseworker. Sure. <laughs> so. What are the kids' expectations at this point? I mean, they had been with another family at this time. You know, obviously they've already gone through trauma um, that you can be informed about to an extent. And um, so I'm just thinking about what a heavy thing that would be on your heart to know what they've been through and how badly you want them to feel safe with you. Right, right. And you know, the tricky thing about foster care is like the workers can't always tell you everything that's happened for yeah. like legal reasons. And I'm like, I need to know everything. They're my kids. Even if I was just fostering, I need to know everything. Like they're in my carriage 24 hours a day. I need to know what they're possibly thinking about. They are too little to explain that to me. They gave me as much as they could but I felt really frustrated as the years would go on and I'm like, and things would come out. And I'm like, I don't understand why that needed to be a private issue. Yeah. Uh, that is thing I should have been informed of, not that I would have taken them or not taken them, but so I can provide the best care for them. So yeah, it is, you know, my like foster care and adoptive moms, we talk about this a lot of like balancing that like intense sympathy we have for our kids. Like I've cried so many nights, you know, like with them of things that have happened to them and we're just grieving. But then during the day, they have all these behaviors that are coming out because of what happened. And so I'm protecting myself, my sanity, my, the peace in my home. And it's like, it's a really tricky, I think, to align. Like, I am so sorry that that happened to you. And I know it doesn't feel like it was six years ago. I know it feels like it was today, but it was six years ago and we've been working on trust and security. Why are we not there yet? And that's so unfair for me to put on them. But like, as a human, you know, I'm like, man, I'm like busting my butt to like show them that I love them and care about them and that they can trust me. Like I've done nothing to prove that they can't trust me, but like, that doesn't matter. Someone else has already proven to them that adults can't be trusted. So it matters. Sure, but it doesn't matter as much as I want it to. You know, I mean, it's ingrained in them. So, well, and it's pretty upsetting when you say their ages were two, three, and four. Yeah. Yeah. And, and to think about the lives that they have led in just such a short period of time before they've walked into your door. Yeah. And the tricky thing for us is they were, um, so 
I don't shy away from this. They were abused and, but they were abused in foster homes. And so, yeah, for them to come here, it wasn't like, well, home is scary and home is bad. It's no, like foster homes are scary and foster homes are bad. So I think that added an extra layer. They weren't like happy to come to my house, (laughs) you know, they like, like, and whatever but like they had moved so like my oldest had moved I gotta count but I think we were either his fifth or sixth home in four years oh my gosh yeah so they moved a lot and then my like just and so then okay so when one kid is in foster care so Alex um came into the system at like two months old and so he was in care and then bio mom had Amari and since she already had a kid in care Amari automatically went into foster care and then same with Sabie so they have like less placements just because they're younger, but then they did eventually all join together. Of course, they're not really, they're like, cool, we're here. Yeah. You say it's forever. Like that doesn't mean anything to me. I've heard that before. Yeah. And that's gotta be hard for you too, because like at this moment, have you, um, and please forgive me if I use the wrong terminology. Um, but like, have you agreed at this point that, that you will be there forever home or is there so much more to be done that you can't even make that guarantee? Okay. So that's a good question. Like with Naomi, we had no clue what was going to happen with her case with the boys, because they had been in the system for so long, Alex and Amari were legally free to be adopted because their cases had run the course. But since they wanted to place them as a sibling group, they weren't placing them. They wanted to them to be adopted all together. And so Xavier's case had not been through like all the court proceedings yet. And so we, Dan and I like made a decision like together, like this is it. Like we are like, if we're taking them, we are taking them. Like we are not moving. Yeah. It was so interesting to follow Xavier's case because we were like, are like, are we keeping Xavier? Like, is there a chance he would have to return home? We felt confident that they really wanted to keep the boys together. And so that like worked in our favor to keep them, I guess to say, but it was always this unknown. And so I did not really feel secure. I felt secure telling Alex and Amari, you are here forever and this is it. Xavier was littler and we didn't talk about it as much until I knew for sure. Yeah. Uh, just because I didn't want to make a promise I couldn't keep, you know? Yeah. Uh, but yeah. So then once their adoption day happened, it was just like this big sigh of relief. Like we are done having people in our home, checking on us. I think it's great that people are checking on us and them. I think that's necessary. Um, but I'm ready to like, not have to answer for everything we're doing. <laughs> yeah. So what, yeah. What happens during this process? You have rooms all set up. Like if you don't know who's coming or when, like how, how did you even prepare? Yeah, we really just had like empty bedrooms. I wasn't going to buy a crib. I know some people do. Um, they'll buy a crib or a bed. I think we have like a spare bed or something. But since we did have some time of like between meeting them in placement, we just went out. And because we had fundraised, we had only raised like $3,000 when we were starting this journey. We like kept it. I'm like, what do I do with this money? And it was actually great. It's so, like we went out and bought beds and dressers and like all that kind of stuff for them. It was like a span of two months between meeting them and then moving in like full time. Oh, okay. So, so there's like a meeting process where you're spending time, but it's not a bring your stuff, you're staying. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. They like would come for a few hours and then they did an overnight and then the weekend. So they would kind of adjust that ever that doesn't happen for every kid. Um, but that was able to happen for us because they were in a really secure, loving foster home at that time. They just weren't looking to adopt. 
So they worked with us on that process. So everything is like so nuanced and based on, you know, so many factors. Yeah. Yeah. There's a lot of moving parts here. How did you, how did you and Dan, um, come together on all of this and how, like, do you remember some of those early conversations that you were having where you're like, we're doing this, we're, you know, we're getting to know these boys and it was so surreal. I do remember the night before being like, we're just sitting on the couch watching TV at like 10 o'clock at night. And I was like, this is probably the last night of this for a really long time. Like it was really bizarre to have a quiet home the night before knowing, you know, them and that they were coming. I don't remember a lot of specific conversations. I just remember it being like, let's just see what's going to happen. Like, yeah, there's only so much you can prepare for. And like, we were just my, myself, I was just open. I'm like, let's just see, take it day by day. And I, I swear today still, we just take it day by day. Like, I should never know what these kids are going to throw at me. <laughs> so how does it go then from, um, from visits to we're ready, you're ready, let's move in? Well, I don't know why, but it happened to be that Dan had like two weeks off in May and we met them in March of that year. And so we were kind of doing overnights and I was like, listen, if they're moving in soon, I want it to be at this time where he has two weeks off. And so we just asked specifically for them to come that weekend. And then we had two weeks together as a family, which was really nice and um, very important because I would have died if I was doing it by myself. They were like, so, I mean, trauma and kids is so intense and they're just like, my oldest has a lot of, my older two have a lot of like anger and behavioral issues. And they were like, of course, going to take it out on us. Who else are they going to take it out on? We're the ones there. And so if I had to do that alone for the first two weeks, it would have been awful. I mean, it's still hard when he went back to work, but I like can't even describe like, and that is an insult to my son, but like almost like animalistic behavior. There's no logic. It's just your body physically reacting to what's happening and feeling so confused and like scared. We absorbed a lot, you know, in those first couple of years. What support was there for you during that? Is that something provided through your social worker or support groups or you meet other families? There are, I'm at my agency there. There's like a group that meets, but they do like trainings and stuff. Um, no, like we didn't have a support group. Um, I think that's something that's really lacking. Um, and something I'm trying to work on creating. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I was just finding other people that like I knew had adopted or had done foster care and their foster mom that they lived with right before us was great. Like I would call her and be like, did he do this for you? Like, how did you respond to that? So luckily I did have her. Um, and still do, we still, um, maintain contact with her and the boys still see her. Um, but no, I feel like, and my family was great, but they also had no idea what was happening. Sure. You know, um, we were like the first in our family to do foster adoption. So it was, I don't know. It was survival. Yeah. (laughs) So what does in these early stages, what does bonding look like? Do you remember any days where you really were like, I, I think we're ha- we had a win today. I think I made strides today. Do you, um, do you have any that stick out? Um, I remember one time my oldest called me, like he called me mom and he looked at me like, is that okay that I did that? And um, I just, we were with friends and I think he slipped it in kind of under the radar to see if I would hear him. 
And so I was feeding him lunch. And I think that, you know, it's so powerful to feed your child food. And he was like, thanks mom. And like kind of shifty eyes. And I just walked back to her kitchen and I was like, he just called me mom. This is so weird. <laughs> um, you know, like making that like transition to from Brittany to mom. And we would like, so like rocking is so powerful. Like we rock, rock our infants, you know? And so I got, we got a, like a swivelly rocking chair and we set it up in our living room and I would just rock them like as much as I could. And we would um, lay in bed. We would at night, we laid with them every single night. We still try to uh, just have that like one-on-one time. Cause that's part of the problem is there's three of them and they came all at once. You don't have that one-on-one time. We really try to carve out one-on-one time and yeah, just, they were very, I mean, they were very sweet and like open. Like I remember on one of the visits, Amari was just like, I like you. <laughs> He's three. He's so cute, you know? Um, and so I don't really remember like the first time they said, I love you. Like a lot of that was like a natural progression, but we were very intentional with bonding and like keeping their world kind of small and really just a systematic schedule. So you could like they could rely on what was happening, which was really hard for me. Like, I'm not like that at all. I'm a very spontaneous person. I don't really plan my day ahead of time. Like, and so to kind of rein it in and have to say no to so many things that I think sound fun for kids is not fun for them. Like that's scary. Like I don't, the family museum is scary. Like I don't want to deal with a thousand other kids and then come into the car and have a total meltdown. I learned that the hard way. unfortunately yeah like just birthdays being really hard and being really intentional of like they remembered just their previous birthday and I had to carry on the tradition that that foster mom did because that's what they wanted and that's not something I would have chosen like what they wanted was not what I would have done naturally but that's what we did and so just being intentional of like giving them them the things that felt comfortable and like just like snuggling. I mean, they, my oldest didn't really want that. Um, my youngest did, you know, physical touch if they don't want to snuggle or something, just rubbing their head or finding small ways to be intentional about bonding and, and just being like a, I really have to try to be like non-emotional. Like when I'm like up, even if I'm happy and I'm like excited, like that is so scary. Cause it's like, Whoa, what's happening? Like, why is there a lot of emotion right now? Um, so just kind of toning it down and <laughs> being calm for them. Yeah. So just doing things that weren't always natural, you know, and it doesn't feel natural to rock a four and a half year old that you just met, you know, but eventually it does. And then when you have a baby and you're like holding them like this and you're like looking at their face, I remember going to a training and they were like, you didn't have that eye contact. You weren't building that. Like you weren't, they weren't memorizing your face. You weren't memorizing theirs. Like, if you close your eyes, can you picture every detail of your kid's face? I'm like, no, I can't. Like, I, I have months of just, like, staring at them. Mm-hmm. Um, and so just trying to do, like, rocking and watching them even while they sleep. Because, obviously, for them, it's really scary to, like, make eye contact with me for a long time. But, um, yeah, just small things like that, I guess. I were know. there different times of day that were harder for them than others? I wouldn't say times of day, but they seem to rotate on like a seasonal thing. Have you heard of the book, The Body Keeps the Score? Mm -mm. 
So it talks about like trauma and just like how it's stored in your cells and like your nervous system and like, like, okay, say you had someone, your father pass away on a certain day. Okay. For a few years, you're going to remember that date and like whatever it's coming and you're preparing yourself and like, you're like, I know I'm going to be really upset that day, but then years go by and you're like, why am I getting upset? Oh, it's the anniversary of my father's death or whatever. Like I'm feeling it. I, but I, at first I couldn't place it because that's not for another three weeks, you know? So it's the same with like abuse and trauma. Like, so one of their really, really traumatic experiences happened in late October. So we're getting there. And uh-huh. I just know every late October, it is like a total crapshoot in this house um, because they're like, but they being children can't really place it. I am so angry. I have no idea why. Um, and I, I've been very upfront with them. Hey, you know, when that thing happened to you, that happened in late October, you're probably feeling it and you don't know why your body's reacting. And so I wouldn't say times of day are stress more stressful than others, but seasons and like, it seemed to be like we would have one good week, one bad week. And then it would like slow down and then it would be like two good weeks, two bad weeks. And they would just kind of like rotate. It was like those, this weirdest pattern that I could recognize from the outside. I'm sure they had no idea what was happening in their own bodies. And minds. Yeah. Well, but, how about, how about between you and Dan? Because I imagine there's a different rate of speed of who bonds to who and who bonds more. So were there any frustrations there where it was like, why will he talk to you and not to me? And what, there's gotta be some differences there just because that's a natural human thing anyway. Right, yeah, like all parents I think are like, everyone relates to everyone in their own unique way. Um, Yeah, I think we'll go in again, like in rotations almost and, Dan is a very, um, he's Romanian, he's Eastern European. I mean, he's just like, this is how it is. And in a way that's really good for them because it's not emotional. It's just a matter of fact, this is what we're doing. This is how it is. I said, no, it's a no. And they respect that. They like that boundary, but then that can be harder for them to open up to him. But you know, that's, I guess that's why they have both of us. And I'm like the more emotional one, which I don't know, for good or, you know, better or worse. That's just, what it is and we I mean Dan and I talk a lot too of like we disagree of like how to handle a situation because he will handle it maybe in a more traditional way like parenting or like how he grew up and I'm like no that's like not how you can parent a kid who has had trauma and so yeah I mean it's really put our marriage to the test for sure and every day I'm not saying he's making mistakes and I'm not (laughs) the next day it's the other way around he's like Brittany what did you tell me yesterday and I'm like (laughs) I know but um yeah so it's it's really hard it's really hard on a marriage and like you've probably heard people say it like if you and your spouse are not both on board don't do it it's not worth it and I'm not saying the kid isn't worth it I'm saying you have to protect your marriage and that kid is not going to thrive in that situation anyway so wait until you're both on board (laughs) yeah Yeah, that makes sense. Okay, so we're talking a lot about the hard things and um, the frustrating things. There's got to be a lot of joy, though, too, and and fascination in in meeting these new people and discovering who they are. Yeah, yeah, it was. It's so interesting to see their personalities develop and like, you know, part of me thinks like, would they would they be the same if they didn't experience what they did? Is this just 
their personality regardless. I'm not sure what I believe about that as far as trauma and like personalities, but, um, and especially with Naomi, Naomi really, she came to us at three weeks. And so she was just so, so between the time that we got the boys and Naomi, we found out we couldn't have biological kids. We didn't know oh my gosh. at the time that was a grieving process. And so we got a call about Naomi and I was like, yes, like I, I want a baby. Like I, I do. And so the beauty of like, it was so beautiful having them at two, three, and four, but it was so beautiful also getting to experience the baby stage. And I just felt like she brought like so much healing to like my heart, having a kid that's wants to be held, you know, as opposed to someone who's like, whoa, 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 back up. Like that's, that's really hard on a mom's heart when I'm trying to step into the mom role. And they're like, nah, like not interested or I am, but after you hug me, I'm going to totally freak out. Cause that was really scary. Uh, letting like someone in like that. So Naomi has been a beautiful journey. She has her own trauma. She still struggles. Um, I, you know, she experienced trauma even at in the womb and before she came to us at three weeks, but yeah, the beauty of, I feel like when I, especially my oldest, he's, he's just my hardest because he's just been through the month, the most, when I have a moment of like true bonding and like, he comes and gives me a tight hug. I'm like, man, this hug feels better than any other hug I've ever gotten because we have worked so hard for this. Like, you know, when you work hard for something and you get it, it feels so much better than when it came easy. And so there is totally that beauty there of like, I'm not going to put down bio moms, but I'm like, you don't get that type of hug. You got that hug from the beginning, but you didn't have to work that hard. So like, there is part of me that's like owning this adoption of like, man, we worked so hard for this. And I feel so proud of us for getting to this moment. That is really nice. Um, of course, you know, bio kids are amazing. Any hug is great, but I think it's just that moment of like unprompted when my kid says you're the best. I'm like, wow. Do you really think that, you know, like, have I actually proven to you that I'm trustworthy or whatever? It's just, it's great. And seeing them thrive at school is amazing. And um, also I think just knowing how hard they've had to work to get to a place of feeling good and confident when I can see all that shine through, it's, it's really beautiful. Like, again, like, because they didn't have, none of my kids had an easy start. So when you think of all they've overcome, it's really like incredible to have a front row seat and to see that. Like, I definitely, I get to this point where I'm like, people who haven't had foster kids or haven't adopted, I'm like, man, you're missing out. Like, it's so amazing to watch. Like these little humans, they're just incredible people. Like, I love it. The fact that they have just been so vulnerable and so hurt and can still thrive and trust and grow like at a young age. Like we can't even do that as adults a lot of times, you know? <laughs> right. It's amazing. <laughs> well, yeah, I think about how we've all been through some level of trauma in the last 18 months and mm -hmm. we're all kicked off center. And yeah. for the most part, it's not, you know, it's not that bad. You know what I mean? If you want to gauge levels of trauma, it's not that bad. And we as adults aren't handling it particularly well. Um, yeah. And we have all this life experience under our belt. I know, I know. And I thought, well, it's uh, honest to God, when they, when we got the call for that Friday, when they had to like be done with school for two weeks, because my kids are so reliant on routine. I looked at Dan and uh, no joke. I was like, I'm going to die. Like I'm going to die in the next two weeks. Like they're going to be so off their rockers that 
something massive have sh has shifted in their schedule and things feel really insecure right now, like they're going to take it all out on me. I'm like the safe person. And so it all comes out to me, but then I have to do something with that energy, you know, like I absorb it all. Like I'm, I'm human. Um, but they did amazing. It was like actually so beautiful for our family. Like I can't, I, I literally thought I couldn't make it two weeks and here we are 18 months later. I'm like, okay, <laughs> in a way I think to be like, we can do this. Like we can do hard things. <laughs> oh my gosh. Yes, definitely. You know, the other thing that I keep thinking about when you're talking is I have a two and a half year old at home and he's been very clingy as of late. And he, um, if there's a loud noise or even if he's just kind of feeling squirrely, he will say, mom, keep me safe. He says in his little voice, he says, keep me safe. And, um, you know, I don't, I don't underestimate the um, feelings that might come from that or whether it's just something you hear on a TV show or whatever. But I think there's also a like a take for granted that like, of course I would keep you safe. You know, nothing but safety. Right, right. And yet he's still asking for it, mm -hmm. you know? But I think it's beautiful that he is able to ask for it and, and know mom's gonna answer that. Like, yeah, I don't have to question, but to even feel like I have to vocalize that. And he's grown up in a very secure home, you right. know, right. Uh, but to kids are so, I mean, we, I still have kids. It's all of us, you know, I'm thinking the same thing when COVID is coming and I'm like, who's going to keep me safe, you know, like, <laughs> yeah. it's all of us. And so I love that. He's like, I'm, I'll go to mom. Like she'll be there. <laughs> That's really sweet. <laughs> Tell me how the three boys um, bonded with Naomi and um, did you feel like, like it was a family decision to, to bring her into the home or how did that all work? They had always asked like, can we get, can we get more siblings? And I'm like, okay, <laughs> no, <laughs> but then we kind of reopened and we got a call. I, um, you know, we got a call about the baby and it actually was so cool because we got the call about Naomi and we were leaving that day for Florida. And I was like, I don't know what to do here because yes, I want her like, but we have a flight in two hours, like our first family like vacation. And so my social worker was great. She was like, I have a place she can stay with another foster family for a week until you get back. I'm like, perfect. And so I told the boys on vacation, like, hey, you know how you've always wanted a sibling. And they were like, what, really? Like they were like, we showed, we had one picture of her. Um, and so we went to Target on vacation and we got like person baby clothes and they, they each picked something out for her. And so they were very excited. And I actually think it was great because we kind of all pitched in together and took care of her, just like, you know, a lot of older siblings do. But um, my oldest who missed out on a lot of like baby milestones because of trauma he was experiencing he kind of got to redo with her like I would do them alongside with her and it was so fascinating to observe like at one point she was like a year old and like you know she's like making me play food from her little kitchen yeah and of course I'm like this is so delicious thank you you know like of course you're like being cheesy for your one-year-old and then Alex started bringing me out food and I responded to him the same way. He had to have been eight. He was eight. What eight-year-old is like going to eat that up? Well, Alex ate it up that I was like, oh my gosh. The, oh, I love oranges. You know, he was like beaming. Like to think of my son who just turned nine. If I had done that to him now, he'd be like, mom, what are you doing? Like, that's not like average for an eight-year-old, you know, but for him, he felt 
comfortable doing that with Naomi because I was like he could see that I was going to offer that and so that was like bonding in a way he's gone through and like kind of hit some of those milestones I mean they say you can make up those milestones if the child is willing to really accept it um and I think for him that was a like a safe way to make up some of those like um she started crawling and he would start crawling around the house and we would luckily we were trauma-informed and we were like wow Alex you're like you were so good at crawling he's nine you know and he's just smiling just beaming that I said he was so good at crawling and so she I really feel like brought so much healing to our whole family like bizarre <laughs> you know to experience but so yeah great. what I I would not have been like hey Alex do you want to crawl around on the floor and let me say good job crawl? I mean we're not going to do that without a little one in the house so right it was great yeah what was the time frame on on the boys arriving and their adoption day what was what was the time period like a year and a half okay we had them for a year and a half. Um, and that is fast. But if you think Alex at the time was five and a half and he had been in foster care since he was a couple of months old. So he had been in foster care five years. So for us, a year and a half actually moved kind of quickly. I feel like most cases are a little bit slower. And then same with Naomi, it was a year and a half, but she had older siblings in foster care. Um, and so her case moved pretty quickly because um, they had experience with mom and dad. So okay. is adoption day a day that you celebrate? Yeah. Adoption day is my favorite because adoption, especially through foster care is so freaking hard. It is so hard. And I always say like adoption is so bittersweet. Like it is both bitter and sweet. And on adoption day, we only celebrate the sweet side, like from sun up to sundown. That's all we do. <laughs> and you know, the boys don't always, they're not always ready to accept the sweet side. Like maybe September 30th, they're not feeling so great, but I'm like, I'm going to feel good. I'm going to breeze past any rude remarks or any struggles. And we try to keep it simple and we keep them involved and they know what's coming and they kind of control that celebration, which I think is good. Um, and it's usually just us. Like we don't invite like a lot of family or anything like that. Um, but yeah, I love adoption day. I think it's just a, like, we concentrate on the hard stuff all the time. Why can't like one day a year, <laughs> we're not talking about any of that. <laughs> So you just celebrated one end of September. It was great. It was great. They went to school. Um, and then I had like a little snack for them ready when they came home. And then we went to the trampoline park, which they've been dying to go to, especially with COVID, you know, we've been like doing nothing. So they were like, thought that was awesome. So it was great. We had a good day. Oh, that's great. And what about Naomi's adoption days? Are they the same? Hers is April 5th. And you know what? Hers is a little more low key because she's not so cognizant of what's happening like the boys remember their adoption day was she one and a half yeah she must have been she's almost two and um so we celebrate and and she calls it an unadoption day I don't know if that's just <laughs> what she hears in her head I guess and um but yeah hers is a little more lucky oh and I'm sure we'll do more when she gets older the other thing that you said you wanted to talk about because um it really hasn't come up yet you are a different race than your children and so it's, it's called a transracial adoption. Is that the right term? Yeah. Okay. So how has that impacted sealing your family together as one? For us, I just feel like they're so beautiful that I'm like, I feel so lucky to have them. Um, but some family members don't feel the same way. Oh, so no. Uh, like extended family, not. In yeah. So we've had to navigate that a little bit. And then 
the boys are half white, half black. Naomi is black. And so hair care has been really interesting and really hard. And um, the boys were a little bit easier because they're boys and hair short. With Naomi, um, when I go in public, I get a lot of opinions on her hair from black women and some are so supportive and some are, you know, kind of side-eyeing me like, what are you doing with her hair? But I try to like, just get support from other black women and um, ask their opinion. I really invite their advice because I need it. <laughs> I did not grow up with that level of hair care. Um, and so that the hair care is huge. Um, and then everything that was happening in 2020 with like, you know, George Floyd and like yeah. all that was really hard. And my kids are very, my boys are very aware. Like I talked to them about Breonna Taylor and George Floyd and all these people. And it's really hard for me to explain as a white person why some white people hate black people. It just, it's different coming from a white person than if a black person had said it to them, you know? And so we just remind them that they're beautiful. And like, um, we just are cognizant of like books we have around the house and people we, people we keep in our lives, you know, we try to keep it diverse and I mean, all races and we've, we're, you know, we're, we're really open with them because the, the more the boys can talk, the better, because they're so aware they weren't little when all this went down, they know they're adopted. Um, and so I asked them like, is it weird for you to have a white mom and dad? And they're like, yeah, kind of like, it's not that I don't want you to be my mom, but it's kind of weird. Like there's part of me that thinks it would be nice to have a black mom. I'm like, I agree. You know, I wish I could provide that for you in a way. So I just try to rely on family and friends. And it's easy for me to see that like their skin color is beautiful, but I know it's harder for them some days. Um, you know, kids at school can be mean. And especially when they see who their parents are, they mm -hmm. kind of catch a little bit more of flack for that. Um, but it is, it is what it is. And we just try to navigate it the best we can. And I just, I hope they grow up feeling proud of who they are and like knowing that like, we do not agree with people who are violent to anyone for any different skin color. That's to me, it's like just the stupidest reason to be mean to someone. doesn't make any sense to me, but um, we're, we're just very open about it with them. Yeah. We just talk about it the best we can. Yeah. I wondered how the last year had, had impacted your family? Well, it was really hard and really interesting because I'm not black that like, I felt like I couldn't be sad about it as much as like other black parents maybe. Um, but I was just as scared and sad. Um, and I do remember a black mom talking to me and she was just like, I was, I had cried and she was like, it's going to be fine. Like she had been there so many times before. And for me, it was kind of new. Um, she was like, you're, you're fine. It's fine. Like not suck it up, but like a little bit, like she was like, yeah, I've, I've been doing this my entire life. Yeah. Like now you get it. Um, so it was a bit of a reality check for me. Not that I have to toughen up, but like that I'm, I'm going to continue probably getting a tougher skin about it. And it's just, it was new in a way. Yeah. Having that happen in real time. Like it was, you know, it's things you hear or this, that, and the other, but like so much was happening, like week in and week out that it was just and then talking to my kids and helping them process it was yeah it's hard do you think it will be important as they grow up to have like you know like black men in their life who you know have an important role to them and I don't know feeling feeling like part of the part of a community 
Yeah, for sure. I think so. For sure. We have, we do have one black man neighbor. He's like the best and they adore him. And he has had several hard conversations with them. Um, and I love that he's willing to do that. And he's always very open with us. Like anytime, anytime, just send them over and he's great. And I notice they gravitate toward, um, like mixed race friends. And I, I think that's great. I think they absolutely need that. Um, but yeah, like for instance, Amari, when he was little, he stole like a candy bar from the gas station. And we were like, listen, like you really can't do that. Just like any parent would, you know, there's a part of me that's like, no, like you really can't do that. Like you cannot get caught stealing at a gas station because this can escalate so quickly. And he was kind of like, why? And I kind of explained it to him, but then I called my neighbor and he talked to him and he got it. Being able to hear from an older black man, like, listen, this is why you cannot really cannot steal a candy bar from the gas station kind of a thing. Um, was just, it's great to have that community, you know, to, to provide something that we can't, that Dan's talking to them, but he's white and it just comes off different. Yeah. Over the last year, we've, we've heard about black parents saying like, you don't have to have the talk with your kids about traffic stops. Right. You know, yeah, and it's like such a weird place for me to be because Dan and I have those conversations with them, but we're white, you know? And so we try to rely on black voices to do that too, because I'm like, I can see why for the kids hearing it from us feels different than having the talk, you know, quote unquote. Um, and then a lot of my friends can't relate because they're, I don't have a ton of adoptive mom friends. So they're like, what are you talking about? I'm like, it's the talk, <laughs> mm-hmm. you know? Um, and so it's great to have other black friends who are able to relate and feel that pain with you. You know, I think all parents need a support system, um, but it sounds like a support system in a variety of different ways has, has saved you on so many different levels, whether it's from your social worker or on trauma or even on this topic, like there's so much support that, that has come through for you. Yeah. And I think that's like that for everyone. You can't find like one group of people that's going to be everything. And so to find it in different pockets is like so key, you know, and I, luckily we live in just like a fantastic neighborhood and they are so great. Like my neighbors are so great with the kids and back on the topic of race, like it concerns me a little bit because there's three of them and they're boys and they all travel together. They ride their bikes throughout the neighborhood together. And I'm like, guys, like, it makes me a little bit nervous, you know, like you guys have to be careful when you're and I, I don't know. I just like people will assume that they're not supposed to be riding their bikes in your neighborhood. Exactly. Yeah. We had a new neighbor move in, um, just down the street here and he told them to get out of the neighborhood and I live in a cul-de-sac. And so we passed his house to get to our cul-de-sac and, um, he kept telling them to stop riding down the cul-de-sac and they were like, well, my house is down there. And he kept saying, no, it's not. And my kids were like, I don't know what to do. He's like, I'm trying to go home, but he's telling me not to go this way. And like, there's no other way to my house. And so I told him, I'm like, if he ever says anything like that to you again, you need to say that I'm going to have to go get my, my dad and, or my mom, and I'll come back with them because it's just so weird. Like, who are you? Super bizarre. I don't know. I don't know why we got on the topic, but anyway, yeah. It's- no, I think this is an interesting conversation because, you know, a lot of it is about perceptions, like the perception that your boys don't belong in that neighborhood, the perception mm-hmm. that 
the wrong person in my neighborhood would to take a page out of current events, steal my car. You know, I mean, right now we're having an issue right here in our community of young people making very, very bad choices. And then they end up on our newscast and we continue that perception and what is perception and what is reality. And it's a conversation that we're having a lot in our newsroom about like, are we helping the problem? Are we hurting the problem? And this is a situation where it comes knocking right on your door. Yeah. Yeah. That's so interesting. I can't imagine. It's like, you need to, you need to, should to, should report on it, but what are you, how are you amplifying this issue? And I think there's a lot to be said of like, I see the anger in my own kids of what people have said to them. And so sometimes I'm like, well, it's no wonder black people are so angry. (laughs) Look how people have been treating them for years, their entire lives, generations. Like, it's like, I don't know. It's like making someone mad and then wondering why they're mad. What? (laughs) You're mean. Like, of course I'm mad. So is there something that you wish you could tell people about your family? Is there like a main way that you feel misunderstood or like something, something you just wish people knew that you're not able to say because it's weird? (laughs) Yeah, gosh, Um, that's a good question. Sometimes I wonder what we look like from the outside. You know, we get looks and stuff, but like, I feel like we're just as bonded as any other family. And I don't know. I, I feel like if I could say anything, if you feel inclined whatsoever to adopt or foster to do it like it's really really hard but it's so beautiful and it just makes like life's issues that are maybe you don't deal with they come into your home and like in the forefront and it just makes you realize just how strong humans are (laughs) like it's there are days where I'm like wow I don't think I can do this again tomorrow um and then there are other days where I'm like look at like everything we've done And like I said before, like we just had to work so much harder at it. And so I think there's something to be proud of there. Yeah, I don't know. It's, that's a good question. (laughs) You feel, you know, after hearing that you learned that you weren't able to have biological children, do you feel like there's some weird, like meant to be, like you were meant to be a mom for these kids and that this, this was your path, this was your destiny. And, and there's something really cool and beautiful about discovering that. Yeah, I do. I do have that sense of like, this is how it was meant to be. And I'm sorry for everything that happened for us to get to this point. And I mean, that's even including their biological families. I know there's so much pain. And so I'm always very sensitive to that, but I also, like I said, we also have to look at the sweet side too. And so, um, Speaking of destiny, I actually had this dream, ongoing dream for years and years of finding a baby in a car seat. At the time, we first year of marriage. Okay, so for 13 years, I've had this dream. At the time, we lived in an apartment building. And I was like, I wasn't just feeling when I come down the stairs, I'm going to see a baby in a car seat. And dreams came and go for years and years. And when we met Naomi, we actually met her in the hospital. She was sitting in her car seat. And I was like, this is so weird. I just had that feeling of like, this is my child. It was like almost like a spiritual moment, you know, it was like so wild because what had happened was she was with this foster family for that week and she choked, she had acid reflux and she choked and her lips were actually turning blue. And so they rushed her to the hospital while foster mom had other kids at home who couldn't stay. And so my social worker called me and she was like, listen, Naomi's in the hospital. I was supposed to get her the next day. And they were like, do you like want to go sit with her? Cause like no one's with her. And I was like, what do you mean no one's with her? She's two and a half weeks old. And 
it turned out another social worker came and she beat me there, but she was like sitting in the corner of the room and I couldn't see her. So when I walked into the room, I just saw this baby in the car seat and she's like so tiny. And I'm like, this is my dream. Like this just came true. Like, I don't know. It was crazy. And then that social worker was like, okay, cool. So like, you're here. So like, I'm going to take off. So I've got like, a, you know, a million other things going on. I'm like, okay, <laughs> I guess I'm a mom now. Like, <laughs> Uh, and Dan was sleeping. He was working overnight. I got this call. I called they're like Naomi's in the hospital. So I called my sister. I'm like, I'm dropping off the boys right now. Like, this is what's going. She's like, cool, like just drop them off, go, do whatever you have to do, which was so great. Um, and so Dan was sleeping. So I'm like calling him, calling him. I'm like, wake up. I just have this baby. So for the first few hours of having her, it was just me and her, which was really nice. I think that was really special for us. But yeah, I do, I do feel like there's a sense of like this is just how it was meant to be. Yeah. Is your family complete? I don't know. I have a feeling that maybe there's one more. Yeah. I don't, I, I don't know if my husband agrees. <laughs> <laughs> I would be okay if it's complete, but I do have a feeling there might be one more out there somewhere. <laughs> well, I don't know. You might have that sixth sense where you, where you can feel things. I know. If I start having dreams, then we'll know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there you go. My mind just totally went blank, but was there, um, was there a project that you were working on that you were doing some fundraising for related to foster families? Oh yeah. So I was raising money. We, that is done now, but we raised, um, we put together gift bags for foster families where we haven't given them to them yet, um, for when people get a new placement. And so this is something I'm really passionate about is like taking care of mom and especially mom, dad too, for sure. Um, but since I'm a mom, I lean toward moms because I know how, okay. Moms in general are so bad at self-care, right? Like we put our kids first, everyone else first. It's like work, I think for us to put ourselves first. And so, um, I read one time and it really clicked with me of like, however, like, um, needy or like however many like special needs your kids have and like how much attention and time you're putting into them, you have to match that. And I was no, I still am nowhere near that. I'm getting closer. I'm not putting that time and self-care into myself the way I am into my kids. And there are very high needs, all four of them. And so I'm putting together a support group. It's, I actually have a meeting after this um, to talk to someone about it. And I really want a place where moms and dads can come together, yes, and just talk and feel like we have someone who gets it. But I'm also going to bring in like um, authors and counselors and like even people like I really find it fascinating, like the effects trauma have on the brain and the nervous system. So I'm going to bring in people about that. And I really want to bring in like racial experts and everything like a one-stop shop and then adoptive parents can go and attend different things and all virtually. We need like such an intense level of support. And I think that over the years, like we talked about, like I found it in different pockets, but many foster parents have kids with more intense needs than mine even. And I feel like mine was really intense. We don't always have time to like find, or we're not sure what we're looking for. I know I need something. I don't know what it is. Or like, I had no idea for the first two years that trauma is stored in the nervous system. No idea. So like, how, how would I have Googled? <laughs> what do I do with my kids trauma in the nervous? You're, you're not Googling that. So I need a place where I'm like bringing it all in for moms and dads and a place where they feel like, okay, these are my people. Like they get it. So I'm, actively creating it. And I'm so excited. Uh, once I, once it's all together, I'll share it with you. Yeah. I was going to say, how can people reach out to you and how can people support you on this? Yeah. I mean, I don't know, email, Instagram, 
Um, I would love it if people are interested. Um, I, I really hope to have this up and running within the next couple of months. So we can talk on this topic for hours. I mean, you have created a whole podcast around different types of moms and everyone's story. And I think, I guess that what I would say is bottom line is your kids are important, but so are you. And if you want to take good care of them and be there for all the intense needs, especially that come with foster fostering in particular, fostering is so hard. Like you really, really have to take care of yourself. And I learned that the hard way. And I know that's the same for many other moms too. And I felt that's what they needed, but what they really needed probably was a mom that was taking care of herself. I didn't do that. I did. I gave everything to them and we didn't really get out of survival. I think because of that, they needed someone who was taking care of themselves. And so I found a way, you know, to work from home and still be home and school pickups and all of that and provide that consistency. Um, and I love it. And I love that outlet that it gives me to be with other women and something fun to do. I think that's so important to have fun. And I deal with like anger or just like resentment or just grief. And so having fun and an outlet, I think is so important. And it, I think it's, it has to look different for every family, but finding a way you can do that while being there and providing that consistency for your kids is different for everyone. That's what's working for me. And then hopefully the support group will be good. I'm like creating it for myself, selfishly. <laughs> no, I think that's what we're all out here doing, right? Like, what did I need at that time? What do I wish someone else had when they, you know, when they need it and they don't have to necessarily go through everything that I went through. So I think that's really selfless right. and really beautiful. That's what I'm hoping. I'm hoping to present it as like, so people don't have to search so hard. I want, I really want it to be out there and available. So, I mean, it's a journey figuring out what you need and what works one year doesn't work the next, but I feel like we're all like, I need something and I don't know what that is. Brittany, thank you so much for this conversation. Thank you. I, I thought this was really nice. I'm, I'm a fan of your podcast. I started listening to it and it's, I really like it. Oh, thank you very, very much. I appreciate that so much. And uh, we're coming up on a hundred episodes. So it, it feels Ooh. really cool. Yeah. yeah. That's awesome. My thanks so much to Brittany for having such a candid conversation. Ups and downs of parenthood with high needs children and low needs children and trying to keep up and be the person we need to be for ourselves. It's all a balancing act. And I love hearing how you tackle it, and how you're helping other moms with those same issues. Because it's all of us, right? Thank you so much for listening to this episode of On a Mother Level. You can find me on Instagram at On a Mother Level. I'll be tagging Brittany so that you can connect with her on the support group. And until next time, when it comes to parenthood, we can relate. You have been listening to the WQAD Podcast Network.